0: Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV AIDS, routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast, the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS existential moment. Please join me, Jay Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. We're delighted today to host Dylan George, who's the director of the CDC Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics, a very important new development that was founded back in January 2022. Dylan's been the founding director through that and really seen as one of the lead architects in putting this concept together and seeing it move forward. This is a big moment, as we'll cover in the course of this conversation, for the CFA in its evolution. So Dylan, thank you so much for being with us. It's an absolute pleasure. I am really grateful for the opportunity to be with you. So we're approaching the two-year mark in January of 2024 for CFA. I don't know what that represents. Does that represent adolescence? You know, however you want to characterize it. But let's start big picture with where we are in the status of CFA, its launch, the definition of its mission, the special value it presents, who are its clients. For our listeners who are not familiar with CFA, as a very important new initiative during the Biden administration, give us the quick summary of where are we and what is this?
1: Thanks for the opportunity. Like I said, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. You know, the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics is one of the newest centers at CDC, as you mentioned. Our mission is to empower people to save lives and protect communities. And the way we're trying to do that is by harnessing cutting-edge analytics to improve the evidence base for responses during a health emergency. So we're trying to use data as a superpower to keep people safe during a health emergency.
0: So in plain English, to somebody who is just your average citizen out in a community that's experienced COVID and now thinking about, okay, what's the future might look like? How do you explain what this is and the value it would have for any number of American citizens who are not necessarily thinking about what analytics are in data?
1: It's a great question. I mean, if we revert back 50, 60 years, thinking about numerical weather forecasting, how do we actually know what's going to happen in the weather in the next 24 hours or so? We were terrible at it. We were really bad at it. I mean, it was just as good to put a rock out in your front yard and see if it's it's wet, that means it's raining, that kind of thing. Now, over the last 60, 70 years or so, we have invested in the data, we've invested in the modeling, we've invested in computational power, we've invested in people to actually progress our capability to forecast weather to the point where we all walk around with a mobile device and we check what the weather is and we make decisions based on what that forecast yeah. looks like. Now, I'm not saying that we're close to doing that for infectious diseases, but that's the world we kind of envision. How do we put information into a person's pocket such that they can make decisions to
0: keep themselves, their families, and their communities safe from an infectious disease outbreak? Can you... In looking back on the first 22 months of CFA's existence, can you point to a couple of critical moments over the course of that where you were able to swing into gear and do that weather forecasting Mm -hmm. function for policymakers and citizens and say, hey, wait a second, this is coming.
1: First off, you do still need to think of us as a startup in government. We are still building our capabilities, our tools, our teams, our partnerships so that we can actually realize our mission. But... As you've rightly pointed out, there are a handful of outbreaks that have happened all the time. We have been asked to help with COVID, with MPOX, with acute pediatric hepatitis, with Marburg, with Ebola, and now with this new fall and winter respiratory illness season as we're going forward. So we've been thrown into helping out as much as we possibly can as we build our organization. An example of how we've been trying to help out. Thanksgiving, two years ago, Mm -hmm. we were all getting those notes from what was happening in South Africa very concerning data uh, that were coming out of South Africa on a new variant. What does this mean? How do we actually understand it? We quickly brought people together over that Thanksgiving to say, it's like, okay, well, let's look at how this is behaving epidemiologically. Let's look at that data. Let's talk to our colleagues in South Africa. Let's really understand how to do this. Within a week, we were able to put together a model that was helping us understand that there's going to be significant spread from this variant. We didn't know the disease it was going to be causing. We didn't know the severity of what it was going to be, but we knew that there was going to be lots of cases coming forward based on the, the projections, looking at all the parameter space and putting it into the model going forward. We knew it was going to be a lot of cases. So we talked with the director of the CDC at the time. We talked with the White House. We made sure that they were aware of what was coming so that they could actually start trying to make plans in different ways. Similarly, as we were trying to understand how would this severity impact us? We were able to galvanize effort working with Kaiser Permanente Southern California Mm -hmm. to actually track cohorts of people that were infected with Delta and Omicron variants and look at their end result through time. And we were able to show that it's like, while it's spreading so much faster than other variants, than the Delta variant, the Omicron variant was, it wasn't causing as much disease, but because we were seeing so many cases, it was still going to cause strain on hospitals going forward putting those two pieces of information together. We were the first organization working with our colleagues across CDC that was able to actually show that using United States data, not data from the UK, not data from Israel, but data from the United States, that it wasn't going to be as clinically severe. But like I said, putting the information together on how much it was spreading and and how much disease it was causing, we could still make an estimate that it was going to strain our hospital systems. That's an example of some of the work that we were able to do, even while we were building our organization.
0: Who are the primary clients for this information? When you do this, who are you targeting? Who do you want to make sure is consuming and acting on this?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. In the early stages, because we're small, because we're growing, we're focusing largely on the federal government whoever is the director of the CDC, whoever is an incident manager of a response, whoever is playing a key role in the White House before it was Paul Friedrichs at the Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response. It was whoever was the czar of the response. Those were our primary focus. Now, I refer to this as our 10x, 100x value proposition. Our 10x value proposition is can we provide those analytical insights in a timely and effective way to the federal government? Our 100x value proposition is can we do that for state and local jurisdictions? Mm -hmm. Because in the United States, in our federalism system, that's where really the action happens in public health is at the state and local level. We need to be able to provide them insights to be able to be much more effective going forward as well. And
0: are they consuming your products now?
1: Like I said, we're starting from moving from the federal to the state and local jurisdictions. We are starting to work much more effectively with them. Now, it's still in early stages, but for example, with the fall respiratory season coming forward, we have put out an outlook of what should we expect in terms of hospital burden for all of the major pathogens that are creating a respiratory disease going forward. We have really tried to make a strong effort in talking to our state and local colleagues so that they are aware of what we're putting out before we put it out. And then also, very importantly, getting feedback from them on that assessment and how it's affecting them in their local jurisdiction in different ways. For example, I was talking with a state health official two weeks ago about our assessment and she was telling me that it was exceptionally helpful for her then to take that assessment and go talk to the hospitals in her jurisdiction and have a really targeted discussion of are you prepared for that level of hospitalization? If not, what can we do to help going forward? And so that gives a scenario planning factor of what is the level we potentially could expect going forward and then people can plan accordingly. So people have been using this information to have very targeted conversations about are we ready or are we not ready?
0: I read that Respiratory Disease Season Outlook that you published back on October 24th, just recently. And I'm assuming that the respiratory viral season is now becoming a kind of planning, a cyclical factor under the direction of the new CDC director, Mandy Cohen. She's made clear this is going to become an annualized way of trying to engage the American public on what's happening and where are we heading. I liked the fact that you gave all of these different uncertainty quotients, whether you're talking about RSV, you're talking about flu, you're talking about COVID, you're talking about other things. But you also wrapped it together with hospitalization is likely to remain fairly high, higher than pre-pandemic levels. And I don't think a lot of people realize that, right? And so the stress on our system remains significant in this period, even with the outlook for those infectious diseases not being all that terrible, as you point out in this outlook that you put out.
1: It's been interesting as we've been reporting out on that assessment. Essentially, the assessment is we anticipate that there's going to be more hospitalizations than what we saw pre-pandemic. And we also anticipate that there's going to be some hospitalizations on the level of what we experienced last year, but about on the same order of magnitude. And the interesting thing about that assessment, is, we've been talking, particularly with our state and local jurisdiction and partners, is that it's the realization that we've got three major pathogens now, whereas we had two before. And everybody kind of intuitively understood that, but it's all of a sudden now, it's like once you state it and put it down on a piece of paper, it's like it really became visceral for folks. It's like, oh my gosh, we do need to start thinking about how to prepare for it much more effectively. And then, as we pointed out in our assessment, even a moderate level of COVID added to influenza and RSV is going to cause more stress than severe situations where we had severe flu and RSV combined before. We need to be thinking about this even with a moderate level of COVID circulating and causing hospitalizations. We're going to have to shift into a new gear in terms of preparedness for how we're actually doing this year on year. Now, I'll be the first one to admit that whether or not COVID is seasonal whether or not we're going to have the same level every year. That's an open science question. Pragmatically, though, until we see otherwise, we should be prepared that it will be a seasonal disease going forward. Like I said, I will be the first one to admit it's an open question scientifically whether or not it will be or it won't be.
0: Now, as you've started this work, are you encountering much pushback from the public? Here we have a public that is awash in misinformation and disinformation, deep in its skepticism and cynicism to a degree about science. CDC has been subjected to all sorts of malignant allegations and criticisms and the like. So you're coming forward with this shiny new set of products, this shiny new capacity. What kind of noise are you getting? Because oftentimes you're not necessarily delivering happy news. Sometimes you're issuing the storm is coming news. Definitely that was the case with Omicron.
1: It was a a five-alarm fire that we were ringing the bell as loud and as hard as we possibly could. With COVID, it's like, let's be prepared sort of situation. But being awash in this situation of misinformation and disinformation, it is a challenging environment. It's challenging for everybody to make sure that we get the message across. The CDC is in the same bucket as everybody else in trying to make sure that people have the right information, it's accurate,
0: it's correct, and then it's also getting through. And what are you finding works in terms of the way you communicate, getting the great modeling exercises completed and out on time, terribly important, getting people's attention, getting people habituated to, aha, we have the CFA, they're coming out with these, let's be sure we are alert to them. But the way that you communicate this to pierce through this noise and confusion out there and a fairly malignant environment in many cases becomes ever more important. How are you going about that?
1: I'm not going to say that we've figured out what the silver bullet is here, but we definitely have recognized that this is critically important. The way that we've organized ourselves to actually execute on our mission is that we're developing a team of data scientists that will generate the analytical insights. We're also currently building a team that will help us translate and communicate those analytical insights to our partners and customers and how we're moving forward. It is critically important that we get this right, and it's gonna be really hard to do as well. Are you going out and doing focus groups? Obviously, there's challenges with being in the federal government and doing some of that work, but we're working with our folks across CDC to actually do that sort of effort. And one of the reasons why it's so important for us to work with the state health officials and the state epidemiologists so that we can actually engage at the state and local level is so that we can get that feedback from them as well. And we can have those discussions in a very bi-directional way and understand how our message is landing or not, and then make those correct pivots in how we're moving forward. Like I said, I'm not going to say that we have found the silver bullet here, but I will say that we are taking this very seriously and we're building a team around trying to improve how we communicate results because we fully appreciate how hard it is to do.
0: Let me ask you another question around the role that you play at the University of Washington in Seattle. You have the Institute for Health Metrics and yep. Evaluation that Chris Murray started 11, 12 years ago now. And just down the road, the Institute for Disease Modeling too. those folks. So we have some very impressive institutions based in these university settings. Some of them, like IHME, went out and started doing very localized projections during COVID across the United States. It was sort of new work that they were undertaking. How does CFA relate to what these other institutions like IHME and the other institute? Early in the pandemic, I was still in the private sector.
1: And I was asked to help the the then mayor, Mayor Jenny Durkin, of Seattle, She brought together a group of people to actually help her think about how to respond to COVID and keep people in Seattle safe. I was privileged and honored to be a part of that group that was helping her interpret different sorts of information to do that. One of the things that I helped her do is that the Institute for Disease Modeling, they had about 20 people on their team that were looking at PEPFAR sorts of issues like HIV, tuberculosis, malaria, and doing a modeling to meet those kinds of missions internationally. Critically important work. They pivoted everything, and then they were helping model just the state of Washington. So they were giving weekly briefings to Governor Inslee and his team and Mayor Durkin and her team and Jeff Duchin and the King yeah. County The thing that was really impressive to me, though, is that one, they wanted that information. And two, they were acting on that information that was coming out of that modeling group. My role was to help try to translate what those analytics and those results really meant and how to actually implement them in terms Mm -hmm. of policy or operations in some capacity. She was inspired to actually have a group of people to help her do that. But it was also somewhat intoxicating to see how quickly she could actually implement these ideas and suggestions. So a lot of what I learned from working with Mayor Durkin at the time and seeing how she was actually ingesting modeling information and then implementing it in an operational context is what we're trying to incorporate into the Center of Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics as well. Because we want to be able to have that kind of impact where people are getting the information and implementing it as fast as they can to keep people safe. And so that's why I'm very dogged about trying to actually work much more closely with state and local jurisdictions in actually doing it. Because they're the ones that actually implement. The CDC provides guidance, but the state and local jurisdictions, they actually are the ones that are actually implementing and operationalizing efforts.
0: For CFA, do you have an advisory group that brings to the table on a regular basis, authorities from the states, territories, municipalities to get their input, but also to sort of raise their consciousness.
1: The director of the CDC does have an advisory group that actually brings together folks on data issues. And then if I remember correctly, they also do have a component that brings in state views on those particular issues going forward. We definitely participate in all of those kinds of discussions going forward. As we'll talk about this new network that we're standing up as well will help us in that very similar vein to get that feedback in a very targeted and bi-directional way. We've also been working very closely with our colleagues at the Association for State and Territorial Health Officials and the Council for State and Territorial Epidemiologists, CSTE, and the Big Cities Health Coalition and a handful of these other partners to actually make sure that we're connecting with the right people at the state and local jurisdiction. And so we've been having very open discussions and very frequent discussions with those as well. While it's not a formal sort of committee, we spend a lot of time talking to them.
0: Let's talk about the launch. I believe the formal launch will be November 8th. Back in September, you announced the $262 million commitment over a five-year period to support something you're calling the National Network for Outback Response and Disease Modeling. This is a major development through the CFA, has 13 partner institutions. Tell us a bit about this. This looks to me to be a major development for you, and congratulations. Tell us a bit about it.
1: Thank you very much. I am very proud of how the team has put this together going forward. Earlier this year, we put out a call for people to come help us build the capability we know that we want to keep Americans safe with using mm-hmm. data as, as a superpower. We were stunned by the excitement and the number of proposals that we received. I mean, they came from academia, from the private sector, from various health departments. And in September, as you mentioned, we selected 13 of these partners to help us build this modeling and analytical capacity at the federal, state, and local level. This is a transformative investment in public health capabilities. Over the next five years, we're hoping to be able to build, test, and scale up new capabilities that are using data to help us understand an outbreak and then also help people navigate their risk accordingly. There's also a lot of similarities that you can also think about between astronomy and epidemiology. They're both observational sciences, and also it's like what you see in the data is largely the past. For example, if you see the light that comes from Alpha Centauri, you're not really seeing it right now. You're seeing it from four years ago. It took four years from the light from Alpha Centauri to get to us. If you see the light from the sun, it took eight minutes for the light from the sun to get to us. We're really seeing the past when we look up at the sky. Similarly with epidemiology, when we look at the data, we're looking at the past there's an effort that's going on right now in the office of public health data surveillance and technology affectionately referred to as the data office my colleague dr jen Layden, who's amazing and is doing a great job galvanizing effort if she is wildly successful we would move epidemiological data from alpha centauri to the sun but still it's seeing the past what we're trying to accomplish both within cfa and within this network is we're trying to anticipate what's going to happen in the next handful of days to weeks in an outbreak.
0: We're trying to look to the future as to how to help people plan instead of looking to the past. Tell us in concrete terms, what would this network of 13 muscle universities, what will it bring as additional value to what CFA is trying to do?
1: We've broken them up into three big groups. Mm -hmm. The first group is what we call the innovators. Mm -hmm. We need to come up with novel ways of doing different methodologies of being able to forecast going forward. We need to actually look at different data sets. For example, there's lots of excitement about wastewater right now because it's faster than the way you get clinically confirmed case counts. This is great, but it's still looking at the past. How do we incorporate wastewater into a forecast so that we can actually see what's going to happen over the next two weeks? That's a methodological and a data kind of like advancement. Mm -hmm. We also need to actually take those, not just innovations for innovation's sake, but we need to test them to see if they're fit for purpose. And so the second group of people are going to actually, they're called the integrators. They need to actually work with a health department, take some of these innovations and say, it's like, does this help me make a decision better, faster, stronger in some way? Then the last group of folks that we've invested in are what we call the implementers if there is something that is fit for purpose and health departments are really excited about it, how do we actually make sure that not just the health departments that are currently in our network are taking advantage of this and benefiting from it, but we can spread it across all of the United States and potentially even internationally going forward. And so they're the ones that are gonna try to figure out how to scale and get adoption of these going forward, developing new ideas, testing out those new ideas, and then making them available to as broadly as possible. So these
0: grantees are doing those three functions to varying degrees. I'm assuming that means that they're under some obligation to really build a partnership with local public health authorities. Exactly.
1: We are focused on, it is critically important that this is a operational capability that we're building. This is not science for science sake, which is an important role, but that's not our role. That's a National Science Foundation, an NIH role. We need to actually use science in service of building these operational capabilities.
0: There's not any private sector partners in that list of 13. Why is that?
1: Well, actually, there's two. The Kaiser Permanente Southern California is a pair provider, and then also the international, I always get... Responder system. Yes, exactly.
0: So those are both private sector. Private sector.
1: The other aspect of this, too, there's sub-awardees among several of these prime awardees that are private sector participants as well. For example, Northeastern University has Ginkgo Bioworks helping them develop different capabilities and doing some roles. And so there's some sub-awardees that are in the private sector as
0: well. Does this network connect to philanthropic initiatives like the Chan Zuckerberg hub or what Gates does how does this network relate to what philanthropy's Rockefeller
1: one of the other features of this network is we've tried to designate one of the performers to be put in a coordinating role And because we wanted to make sure that the network was interfacing with other efforts that are existing, particularly the modeling for infectious disease agents studied Midas at NIH, the Chan Zuckerberg initiatives, the initiatives at the hub in Berlin for the WHO. We wanted to make sure that what we're doing within the center could be understood by these other groups. And then what they're working on in their other groups could come into our network as well. We wanted to have a belly button where that could happen. So we didn't have 13 people Merving on different networks in in an uncoordinated way. So we're hoping that that coordinating can help with that interaction and we can get more benefit out of the network as we interface with them as well. There's two other networks that are I think are critically important here too. The Office for Advanced Molecular Detection had stood up the Pathogen Genomic Centers of Excellence and our colleagues in the Division of Vector-Borne Diseases stood up a Vector-Borne Diseases Centers of Excellence. Those efforts are really impressive and doing some things that we think that we can interface with them to get a greater than the sum of the parts initiative across those networks.
0: Give us a little bit of a preview of what's going to happen November 8th.
1: Well, on the 7th, we're going to come together as all of representatives from all of the networks on a kickoff meeting. They're going to be here in D.C. That we're going to be talking about this and showing an opportunity for everybody to be face-to-face with one and meet everyone for the first time and then to discuss what we're going to be doing across the network to try to come to a more synthetic whole of what we're going to be going forward. Then on the 8th, we're going to be talking on the Hill with what we're trying to accomplish and making sure that our partners in the Hill that have appropriated dollars to actually make this happen are aware of what their dollars are going towards and to show who and where and what we're building in this network going forward. Do
0: you have some existing champions on the Hill now?
1: There's been a handful of folks that have been very interested in what's going forward. Representative Rosa DeLora is going to be sending in a video going forward. In the past, there's been Senator Patty Murray has actually done something similar in previous engagements. We've had some very robust and interesting discussions with our colleagues on the Hill. It's been wonderful to go up on the Hill and talk with representatives and senators and their staff about what we're trying to build going forward. I've been pleasantly surprised by a generally bipartisan excitement about what we're trying to build and how we're trying to move forward.
0: What about governors? Are you getting any governors in your camp? At present, no, we haven't had that
1: outreach yet. One of the things that we're really excited about, one of our partners, the Johns Hopkins University group led by Caitlin Rivers and her team, they're going to be working with the National Governors Association to try to help us make more headway in that space. I'm super excited about that because I do believe that for us to attain our 100x value proposition, we need to work much more closely with our state and local jurisdictions, including the mayors and governors. And so that's why this is really exciting development within the network. And we're going to see how well that works.
0: Let's close with a discussion around some of the outstanding challenges. We know you're going to need more experts to fill out your staff. We know you're going to need to scale the financing over time. The 262 five years, a good start. Maybe you can give us a little bit of a view around what's it going to take to scale this in a realistic and ample way. We've talked a little bit about the communications capabilities you're going to need. We haven't talked at all about AI and what that means in this. We do know that this fits into the CDC's global mission. And we talked already about you're in an environment of skepticism and anti-scientific sentiment and the like. The last thing is data access because we know how sensitive data access has become, how much this has become an issue of personal liberty and protections of individuals and how much CDC still struggles to get the authorities it needs in order to have ready and timely access to data from state and local and territorial sources that still remains a problematic aspect. There's been some progress made. How does all of that impact what you're doing? Why don't we start with experts, money, and communications capabilities?
1: As I pointed out earlier, it's like we are a startup in government. We are still building our team, our tools, our partnerships, and how we're engaging more effectively going forward. I came from the private sector. I was recruited by the previous CDC director to come actually do this. And I was in the private sector at the time. I did have private sector expectations on how you could hire and how quickly that can happen and everything. And I've moderated my expectations going forward. It's not where we are in terms of numbers. I think from a federal hiring perspective, I think we're, we're doing a great job.
0: How many people do you have now? Two
1: years ago, we were five people. Last year, we were 20 people. This year, we're a little north of 50 people. We're on a pretty good clip of bringing on people to do this. The thing that I'm more impressed about than the number of, of what our head count is, is that the team we have is crazy good. And what I mean by that is that people have left tenure-tracked positions to come join our team because they can see the mission and its importance, and they can see how we can have direct impact. And improving these capabilities in a way that you can't do anywhere else. That's why they're coming to be on our team, and it's just really wonderful. They are crazy good. It's one of the best teams, full stop, that I've ever worked with. So I'm really excited. I'm very proud to be associated with this team. But building and recruiting is a challenge. We need to keep moving, we need to build that team that's gonna do that inform function where we're translating that information. We also need to bring in a handful of private sector technologists to help us make sure that we're at the forefront of data technology and that we're always staying at the forefront going forward. We do have some hiring challenges. And so if anyone's out there listening, if they're interested in wanna have a good challenge, please come talk to me We'd be very happy to, to have that discussion. So building the team is going to be a challenge going forward, but I think that's one we're up for. Funding, as you mentioned, it's like we did receive in FY23 an appropriation line, which as you know, and the appropriation line is the big deal. We do have a direct appropriation line. So we moved from supplemental money to appropriated dollars, which is a very significant endeavor. We do have in the FY23 president's budget, you can see that there was a $100 million ask for our budget. That's where we think we need to be year on year for our operating budget for us to attain that full benefit of what we're doing going forward and to be able to engage with state and local jurisdictions in as effective a way as we want to. Funding the Center for Forecasting Outbreak Analytics is essentially indirectly funding state and local jurisdictions, or at least that's what we're trying to do. We're not there at that $100 million kind of year on year operating budget yet. And so that's why, you know, I'm continuing to talk with my colleagues, the appropriators in Congress about this going forward. And we're very appreciative of everything that they've done for us up until this point. And we want to make sure that they're aware of the value that we're bringing in and how we're actually helping their own jurisdictions going forward. So funding remains, you know, an issue going forward as well. And then again, just to really foot stomp this kind of main point, though, figuring out how we can actually have meaningful connections with our state and local partners is we have this aspiration, but we haven't figured it out completely yet. And it's a hard problem, though, too, because when we're talking with our federal partners, when I talk to the CDC director, when I talk to folks at the White House, it's a one to one. We can almost glove engage with them. When we're talking to all the jurisdictions across the United States, it becomes much more challenging. And so we need to figure out how to do that much more efficiently so my team doesn't get swallowed up. So we need to think about how to use technology more effectively. We need to think about how to use partnerships more effectively. And we need to think about how people can absorb and start using this information on their own in different capacities. But this is one of the challenges I do think that we're up for as well, is to try to figure out how to actually operationalize that.
0: What do you worry the most about? You're in a midst of very promising and fast-moving progress, and congratulations on that. But what worries you still?
1: You know, one of the things that I do worry about, the public health data systems in the United States have been under-resourced for a very long time. I don't think that people fully appreciate how rickety they are. My colleagues in the data office are just doing an incredible job of trying to get our data systems up to where they need to be mm-hmm. such that we can actually have the data that is needed to keep folks safe. But I do worry that it's going to require a lot more effort and a lot more time to actually get those things right. That's not a commentary on my colleagues that are doing that work right now. It's, it's a commentary on the challenge of what we're up against in terms of improving those data systems to the point where they're really at the level that people expect.
0: Closing question, what gives you the greatest hope and optimism?
1: The absolute best part of my day is when I take my seven-year-old son and drop him off at school. I hold his hand to the drop-off point. He gives me a big hug, and then I send him on his way, and it's the absolute best part of my day. Everything else kind of is, doesn't even come close. Thinking about the the capabilities that we're trying to build in using data technologies and different analytical capabilities, I'm very hopeful that by the time that he is a teenager, that time he's really starting to confront some of these things, that we're going to have much more robust capabilities to keep himself safe, his friends safe, and our community safe. The other thing that gives me a lot of hope, though, too, is that the team, like I said, that we're building and the colleagues that I'm working with at CDC, they are driven by that same sort of hope to try to really make a better tomorrow and try to keep people safe from infectious diseases and other health issues going forward. I am encouraged by the team that we've been putting together in the Center for Forecasting Outbreak Analytics and the colleagues that I'm working with at CDC to see that going forward.
0: Well, this has been a wonderful conversation at a particularly important moment in time in the development of CFA. Congratulations in advance for the launch and best of luck with everything. And I hope we can get you back here in another six months to report further on where things stand. Always happy to come back. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.